Good morning. It's good to see you all. We're in Psalm chapter 18. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, I'd appreciate that. Take your Bible out and uh, go to Psalm 18. <clears throat> We're almost done with this psalm and almost done with the uh, summer of the psalms, right? It's kind of fall now, so we should be close to over. Um, before we get into that, I wanted to make sure to have you look at this uh, yellow card. Again, that was in your, uh, in your bulletin. We have uh, the Sunday school schedule kind of coinciding with the start of our next sermon series, The Harmony of the Gospels, and uh, this is just an update. So this is a, this is a Bible study time in the sanctuary here uh, for everybody, youth through adults. So your Sunday school class, if you go to one at 10 o'clock, usually in the morning, uh, it'll be in here. Uh, these three Sundays, and then the following one, the, uh, the final one, is a celebration Sunday. We will not have a Sunday school time, but it'll be one service at 1030, followed by a Thanksgiving uh, dinner potluck where you and I get to bring our favorite side dishes, Thanksgiving side dishes. So if you have a good Thanksgiving side dish, start preparing that ahead of time. Think, thinking through that a little bit, right? Getting your ingredients ready. But very, very valuable uh, time of teaching during those, those three Sundays in November. It'll kind of set the table and set the stage and get, uh, kind of lay a foundation for us for the, the whole sermon series on uh, the harmony of the gospel. So I, I encourage you to check that card out for the topics and to be a part of that. Uh, if you don't have a Sunday school class, what I'm saying is we can all be a part of that here in the sanctuary at 10 o'clock. Um, on those Sundays in November. So we're in Psalm 18. We're progressing forward and moving through uh, our series. This is part five of a, of a six-part uh, sermon series on Psalm 18. Uh, one of the encouragements I've been saying as we've gone through this, if you've missed it, go, go check it out. You, you can live, or go, go see the, the old live stream now, I guess, of the old ones, um, and the, uh, or, or go online and listen to it during the day if you want to catch up. Because these are not standalone passages per se. We, we want to see the, the beauty of God's Word in context and in completeness and see kind of what David is saying in, in, in context. So I want to run through that a little bit. We look at David uh, in Psalm 18. He, he begins this psalm uh, and he says, this is, this is a song of praise to God because of uh, God delivering me from all of my enemies. He's given me victory over all of my enemies. So we see him starting out with praise, saying, God, you, you are the one that I give credit to. And that's, that's the first sermon uh, was David's rejoicing. He talks about God being his rock and his shelter and his fortress and, and his refuge. And he and it goes into this list of who God is, and he praises God, rejoices in God for that. But he also calls out to God. And the next sermon was God's, or David's rescue. We talked about David's rescue, how God moved. God responded to the cry of his child, and he responds to yours and mine. And he, he moves into rescue. And he does whatever he can in line with his covenant-keeping love for us to rescue us. And we saw this beautiful picture, this almost scary picture of, of the shaking and smoke and earthquakes and fire. Like that's how God, that's how it is when God moves, right? I, I mentioned like when my grandma was alive, she always said that with thunder and lightning, that was God rearranging the furniture, right? It was like, okay, okay, that's, wow. Or the angels taking pictures. Oh, okay. Interesting. I never heard that one. Yeah. So, but then, then it said what? It's like, that's how God moves. And then he said that he reached his hand down and grabbed us. So there was this might and this majesty of God, which we, we adore. But what, what made it real for David is his rescue was it was personal. God reached his hand down and said, come on, I, I've got you. My hand is going to your hand. The God, God of the universe reaches down for us. Then he talked about his reward, how, how God was his reward and how, how God had rewarded him because David had treasured God and delighted in God. And, and as he did, even, even in the hard times, God disciplined him. And he thanked God. We talked about this. The reward that we have and we can embrace is that we can delight in God and then he's going to delight in us. And we can, we can rest assured that he will discipline us when we need that. And that's a reward. And sometimes we don't like that, right? I know when I was a kid, I didn't like discipline. I didn't like being disciplined. But looking back, I'm thankful 
and look, and look at, at the, my parents' discipline or, or, my, or my, the teacher's discipline of myself as a gift that God gave me in my life, a, a means of grace to help me mature and to grow up. So he talked about his reward. Last week, we talked about uh, God's re, uh, David's renewal and how God renews. And, and we kind of set the stage here because, we, again, we had to make this in context, right? You can't just sit here and say, okay, God, renew me, and you just sit there and wait. There's something that has to be in the heart, a position of the heart that it has to be in in order to receive God's renewal. And, and so we tracked backwards again. We said, well, let's see, where was David at? When, when he was ready to be renewed by God, what did we, he already accomplish? Well, he, he'd been thankful and rejoiced to God, right? He, he put his heart in a position before God, a humble position, saying, God, you're all. You're, you're, you're all I need. You're my everything. I am going to humble my heart before you and thank you for who you are. And before, before I can get any renewal from God, I've got to put my heart in a position that says, thanks for being God, God. You're, you're God. And then he, from there, he goes into this faith. The rest of it, God's going to rescue him, and he's going to be faithful to him, and he's going to be a reward for him, and, and he's going to be the treasure that David sought after. So we talked about last week, not only do we thank God for what he's done in our life, we know that in his covenantial pursuing love for us, we can continue to have faith and trust for what he's going to do in our lives. That we can grab onto that and say, God, I'm expecting, I'm ready. I'm ready for what you have. You've been so faithful and so faithful and so faithful. I am going to sit here and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, I'm going to go where you tell me to go. I'm going to, I'm going to change the, my heart where you, how you want me to change my heart. I want more of you because you're my treasure. So David put himself in this position of humility and openness to be, re- to be receptive to God, to say, God, I, I want you to renew me. I want you to, to take my, my whole heart and just change me and renew me and, and strengthen me. And, and God did that for David, and God can do that for us as well. And this week, we move into David's restoration. It's like this, this redemptive thing happening in David's life. And, 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 and you know, as we talked about <clears throat> these passages, it's very, there's liter- literal things are happening here. David David was handed victory by God over all his enemies. And we're going to see some of that today, like some pretty, pretty harsh victory or how, how he conquered. But as, as David is writing this psalm and as he's praising God for this, he is, he is not just recounting historical fact. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and, and so I don't know some of these tenses and things, but all the commentators that I've been reading, and they're saying about this passage we're looking at today in Psalm 18, it's, the Hebrew words, are, are a lot of them are in the imperfect tense. Which what they say is it's not, it's not something that so much that has occurred in just a historical record. It's something that's ongoing. The work of that, that tense, that verb, is an ongoing, continual, and even expectant thing to happen. And what we see in this is that David's not just recounting the victories that God has had in his life. But what he's saying is, not only has God had victory in my life, but those small victories, and this has been throughout the series, the small victories that God has given me make way to the greater victory that is in the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. And we're going to see that next week in a, in a huge way. But we're going to see that today as well, really connect. We're not going to talk a lot about us fighting our enemies here. We're going to talk about how Jesus has, has won the victory over Satan for us here and now and how he's guarding our soul because of that. There's a restoration that's happening. So we, along with David, should be expectant of what God is going to do and, and, and looking forward to the restoration, what God, how God's going to restore us. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray and then, uh, we'll get into our text and, uh, and get right to work, okay? Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you today as, as the God of the universe, as the one we adore, the one that we treasure. We thank you that you have given us grace upon grace. You've given us the gift of your son Jesus on a cross that we deserved. 
And God, you raised him from the dead to give power over death once and for all that we would have life. So we're here to worship you because of that. We thank you for the, the sacrifice offered. And even as we partake today and remember through the Lord's Supper, God, may that be a meaningful time to, to boast about you, to lift you up above everything else. May we humble our own hearts before you. Now, as we look to your word, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive. That, God, you would challenge us and change us. You would convict us of sin. God, you would conform us into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. We want to be more like him. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, we're in Psalm 18. We're going to read 37 through 45 together, and then we'll, we'll break that apart. <clears throat> I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they are wiped out. I crush them, and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there is no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. You have freed me from the feuds among the people. You have appointed me as the head of nations. A people I had not known serves me. Foreigners submit to me, cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. It's a pretty, pretty descriptive text, isn't it? Um, interestingly enough, we, we were setting this series up and looking at how is this going to look? And we actually had, had partnered part of what we read just now where he crushed his enemies with last week's message. And, and it just wasn't fitting very well. And I, I didn't want to end on that note like God just wiped them all out. Goodbye. We wanted to kind of start with that today and, and see how that fits in and see what David's talking about. You know, one of the things, and, I, and I've, I'm very, very aware of this because there's, there's oftentimes a lot of loss associated with a church family, especially when you're connected. And as a pastor, you deal with a lot of things that are a lot of things of loss, right? Physical loss, people getting sick, people, people uh, dying, all, all of this stuff happening. But what is most important when we talk about the family of God and we talk about spiritual matters, are, that spiritual matters are the most important, that the soul is what's most important. God is more concerned about eternity and our soul than he is about flesh and blood. We get caught up on flesh and blood. Why do we do that? Because it hurts when I stub my toe. It, it hurts when someone we, we love is, is, dies or is lost, right? It, it hurts. This life has pains in it. And I, I want to read a passage to you, a part of a passage, anyway, you can study it more on your own in full, out of Romans. And I, I, I use this often because it, it is the state and condition of our world, and, it, and it's a reality check and a perspective check we have to have constantly. We like it to be, and I use this term because my daughter loves it, right? Cupcakes and rainbows. We like it to be cupcakes and rainbows. We like it to be beautiful and perfect and everything's all fun and hunky-dory. But that is not the reality of the world. That is not what, what we live in. So Romans chapter 8, it says this, verses 22 and 23. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. It says not, not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And, and if you look at the entirety of this passage, here's what has happened. Sin has entered the world through, through sin in the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world, death entered the world. And we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But because of that sin, everything you look at, creation and ourselves, everything we look at is not the way it ought to be. It says that creation, you look at the tree out there, or we're here under Mount Shasta, you look at God's creation of the mountain, those things, as beautiful as they are and as refreshing as they can be to us, 
they are groaning. They're like, oh, just groaning, longing to be redeemed and restored into something new. Because before sin entered the world, they weren't, oh, they were, oh, right? And that's what we long for. We long for this peace and this freedom and this ability to take a breath without feeling like we're in that funk. And, and that's what Scripture basically says, is that we're all, all of creation, us included, are all in this deep funk because we're hopeless in sin and without Jesus, longing to be redeemed. So today as we look at David's restoration, or we see this idea of redemption and restoration, God taking what is bad or ashes and making something beautiful out of it through Christ and what he did on the cross for us, right? Now, as, as horrid as it is, as ugly as the cross was, what it accomplished was the most beautiful thing we could ever imagine. And we groan. Even today, we groan. Even if we're in Christ, we groan still longing for the redemption that's to come, longing for that restoration when God is going to come back and when he's going to take those trees and those mountains and you and I, he's going to say, breathe easy. Be as you were made to be. Because sin is no more. And that will be a wonderful day. And we long for that. But we need to set the stage and understand that there are groanings. We can't pretend it's going to be great. We can't pretend it's going to be wonderful here in this life. Although there are aspects of it that are wonderful, there are aspects of it that, that are great, that is not where our hope lies. And if our hope does lie there, it will constantly let us down. Because the world will constantly let us down. So today, we're going to look at, at, although there's this funk there, we have this little funk because of sin and the fall, we, we are longing expectantly, like, like David was longing, and like, like Paul writes when he's, we're longing in our bodies for this restoration and what this restoration brings. So let's, we're going to look at three things that this restoration brings to us. Number one, uh, restoration, it, it disarms and disables the enemy. It disarms and disables the enemy. Look back to our text in, in chapter 18. Look at four, uh, 37 through 42. Now, God, God gave David these victories, right? He gave these victories physically to King David. He had these victories over these nations and these people groups. This is stuff that happened. But it made way, and we talked about this, and you got to hold on to this. It made way for the greater victory that was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come. So the hold that sin and evil have, although we're talking about real physical victories, David's, the greater victory in Christ is about the, the heart, about the soul. And the hold that sin and evil have on the human heart is consumed by the power of God's grace. And, it, and it's, it's released by the power of God's grace. I, you need to understand that. So let's read this in view of that. Read this text with me again. See the power of God behind the hold that sin would have on us if we put our faith and trust in Him. Look, look what it says now. God, I pursue my enemies. I overtake them. They do not turn back until they're wiped out. So we're talking about these holds these, that Satan would have on us. I crush them. They cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there's no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust in the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. That is the victory we have because of God's grace over Satan and his hold on our heart. God is pulverizing Satan. And God defeated Satan through the cross of Christ when Christ rose victoriously from the grave. It, death had no longer any hold on, on, on Jesus, on, on God, but on any of us who would put faith in him. 
Because we have faith in Christ, we too will live. And sin and Satan and death have no hold on us. So we have to understand that although there's groaning, although there's a funk that we can have, there is a victory that we have because of Christ and what he's accomplished. And through that victory, he has disarmed and disabled the enemy's hold on our hearts. When God enters our heart by faith, sin no longer can have that hold on us. Romans 6, 17-19 says this, But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching which was handed over to you. So this is what it's saying. We used to be slaves of sin. We used to be bound by that. Satan used to have a hold of our hearts. And we could not help but do anything that, except for what he wanted us to do. That was just who we were. But because we have expressed faith in Christ, because we have believed from the heart in Christ, he has come over. Uh, and, and having been set free from sin, in verse 18, uh, we have been now enslaved to righteousness or become servants of righteousness. Before, before Jesus, we could never be servants of righteousness. We, we could probably fake it and try. We could, we could try to be good people, but ultimately Satan had his hand on us, and we could do nothing else but obey him. But when Christ came, but thank God that now we are servants of righteousness. Paul says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For, for just as you offered the parts, used to, offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity. So what we did with our bodies was out of slavery to, to Satan and impure. It says, and a greater lawlessness. So now, because we're in Christ, offer them as slaves or servants to righteousness, which results in sanctification. And that word sanctification, that's that growth in Christ. That's that being, continuing to be set apart and growing to be more and more like Jesus. And see, that's, and that's leading to the restoration. When, when we are growing to be more and more like Jesus, we're growing up in our faith as we be, become the servant to righteousness and no longer serve the way Satan would have us serve or the enemy would have us serve. See, there's growth and restoration that happens because we've set, been set free from sin and been set free from the, hand, the hold that Satan has on us. And now we can be obedient children of God. As we are obedient children of God, we must be sure that every victory that God gives us, we see as God's victory over us and for us. And that is he's giving us that victory over sin and Satan and temptation we give him all the credit. Before Christ, I, I was responsible and, and had to take credit for my own life. It's interesting how this works. Before Jesus, most of the time, we, we blame other people for our actions. We blame other people for the way that we are. Oh, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. And then after we find Jesus, we come to this, oh, yay, this is great. And now we're all of a sudden a better person because Jesus made you that way, because Jesus is producing a fruit in you. And now we, the tendency is, oh, I can take credit for that. And see, that's where Satan wants to try to get back and try to get a hold, and he can't. But he'll throw those little lies out there. Oh, you're, you're good enough. It's okay. You're, you're awesome. Keep, keep being the way you are. It, you, you should be the, the example of everybody. And that's not it at all, right? We should lay aside the pride and say, you know what? God is the one who freed me from sin so I can obey. And in my obedience, I am giving glory to Jesus Christ. Listen, without him, we could not have the victory. Without him, Satan would not have been disarmed or disabled. We triumph only because Christ has triumphed for us. I want to read a passage. I read this last week a little more in depth, but just a couple of things in Romans 8, verse 31 to 34. It says, what, what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, what is it? Who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? He's saying, listen, I, I'm on your side. I've got your back. I'm disarming Satan. 
follow me, trust me. And then it comes into who? Like who? In verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So this is God doing the work, God getting the credit. Who's the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised and is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Sometimes we take this Christian faith and say, you know, thank you so much, God, for, for sending Jesus, and Jesus is here as God in the flesh, and he dies on the cross, and he raises from the dead, and, and I can be forgiven because of the blood that he shed, and yay, God. But for, we forget that, that that work of the cross is just like this imperfect tense of Hebrews that David's talking about. It's a continual work, and we should be expectant about what God is going to continue to do through what he's accomplished and triumphed over for us on this cross that we can continue to see that God has that victory over sin and temptation day in and day out. We don't just leave it once and done and walk away. Because God is continuing to disarm Satan and disable Satan so that we can have victory in Christ and know what it's like to be able to serve God from our heart in righteousness. That's what he wants from us. And David was expectant of that, and we ought to be expectant of that as well. See, when Satan's disabled and disarmed, it enables us then to obey not because we have to in order to earn God's favor and get to heaven, because God accomplished everything he needed to accomplish right there. But we get to in order to show that we are sons and daughters of God. Listen, there's only one way to live so that the enemy is disarmed, and that is in Christ. If you want the enemy to be disarmed from your life, you've got to be in Christ. Turn with me to Colossians. Keep your ribbon here. Colossians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Then you have the little small letters from Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> I want to show you the contrast here, the before and after picture. If you imagine David, imagine David as just in his physical realm. He trusted God. He was God's, uh, a man after God's own heart, but he was, he was backed up against the wall so often in battle. The people that were faithful to him were unfaithful to him. The people that were, were against him were always against him and getting more people against him. He couldn't hide and try to, try to escape, and he kept on continually crying out to God. And this, this moment of Psalm 18 is like this culmination of all the psalms, of all of his laments, of all of his crying out to God and being his back against the wall. God, rescue me. God, save me. And God says, I'm going to give you the victory here. I'm going to show up and do something so you can ha- not only so you can have victory, but so that it makes way for the greater victory for all of us that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because that's the greatest victory we could ever have. And, and, and listen, there's times where we feel like our back's against the wall. We feel like, I just can't help doing what I'm doing. I, I, just, I keep on sinning and sinning and sinning. Jesus can help that. There's a before and an after when it comes to Jesus. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave you your trespasses. So there it is, right? I once was dead, and then with Jesus, I am now what? Alive. I was dead in my sin and my trespasses, and then he made me alive with Christ and forgave us all our trespasses. In verse 14, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. That's an amazing thing. There, you, you understand that? That we owe a debt? Because of our sin, we owe a debt. And part of that burden that we face and part of that struggle we face with Satan and the enemy and not being disarmed and disabled is he is constantly reminding us of how bad we are and how we need to be better. How you need to work harder. And we just 
can't do it. So oftentimes what he gets us to do is just wave the white flag and say, I give up. I, I, can't, I can't not sin. I can't not live in this world, and, and I'm just going to forget it. I, who cares? And all, all the while, Jesus is like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's not the truth. I did all the work for you. Come to me, and you'll find rest. Come to me, and you'll find salvation. Come to me, and I'll take care of it. So he erased this certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. It's done. And that's what's disarming the enemy. He's nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. Jesus has the greater victory. Jesus has disarmed Satan and the, and, and the enemy in our lives if we are in Christ there's no more power there. And there's nothing he can do to separate us from God. There's nothing he can do to rock that assurance that we have. And we see that in Corinthians. It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. And where death is your victory, where death is your sting. We hear this often at memorial services, right? Because we trust that there's a hope for eternity. And that's what we should trust every single day that we're taking a breath as well. That death, you have no victory. Death, you have no sting. It says the sting of, of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But... Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the victory that we see. God in Christ has single-handedly wiped out the devil's ability to have a hold on us through our faith in him. David was longing for that, and we should be longing for that. So this longing, this redemption, what it does, it helps us in this, in this area understand and know that he is going to disarm and disable the enemy. For now, that's happening. He, he's done that. Are we going to be tempted? Yes. Are you going to fall? Probably. But God is going to hold on to you, and, and ultimately there is defeat there. And you, and you and I don't have to become servants of Satan anymore. We can be servants of righteousness and be obedient children of God. And he'll carry us through. And then one day, that serpent will be crushed forever. And he'll be thrown in the lake of fire where he belongs. God has promised that. The cross and the resurrection has disarmed and disabled the enemy forever. Number two, this restoration brings peace and unity. The restoration brings peace and unity. Look at verse 43. Let's go back to Psalm 18. If you have, hopefully, your finger there, your ribbon. Back to Psalm 18, looking at verse 43. So David talked about the conquest over his enemy and then kind of what God, how, how God set him up. He says, You have freed me. From the feuds among the people, you have appointed me the head of nations, a people I had not known serves me. Now, when we're talking about this, we see David and, and David's kingdom. David's kingdom is a small-scale kingdom of God's kingdom to come. So what we're seeing here is, we could put Jesus in this place. Jesus said, you have, you have freed me from the feuds. There's no more feuds. There's peace now. Once Christ finally rules and reigns forever, there will be peace among the people. And he'll be head of all the nations and, and all the people, even those that he didn't know were his, will, they'll come and serve him. And we see that, that, that Israel, like the, the Hebrews and then Israel was God's chosen people. But the, the promise to Abraham was that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the, sh on the, on the seashore. And, and who does that include? It doesn't just include God's chosen people. Israel includes the Gentiles as well. Any who would believe and have faith in Christ. This is a precursor. It's a foreshadowing of things to come, of, of God rescuing sinners from their sin 
through faith in Jesus Christ. So this restoration brings peace and unity. You know that we were once enemies of God? Maybe some of you still are. We're enemies of God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith. It's not just, hey, okay, you're righteous, you're good. There has to be a faith in Jesus Christ, a trust for what He has done, that we are, are serving Him and not ourselves. Say, so, God, I trust you by faith. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has offered a way for us to be at peace with God. We were once enemies of God, and now we can be friends of God. We were once, once who were far away can be brought near because of the cross of Christ. There's a peace. This restoration brings a peace. And for a, a Christ follower, for someone who has trusted Christ as Savior, there is an internal peace that just brings you rest and comfort. No matter the circumstance of life that God throws at you, there is a peace and comfort knowing that you are a friend of God and not an enemy of God. Oh, to be an enemy of God, though. What that must feel like. What that must be like. And if you are, I would say trust Jesus in faith. And he will make you a friend. He will forgive you and make you a friend. There's an inner peace. And this peace that he gives is not a peace that the world can offer. A peace that everyone desires and goes about trying to find the wrong way. It's just not something that you're going to find in the world. Jesus said in John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives you. It's not the world's peace. It's not just like, hey, let's, let's find a treaty and, and sign it and we'll all be good. Without Jesus, there is no peace. He says, don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Why? Because we can have a peace that surpasses understanding in Jesus Christ. So there's this inner peace that it brings, but there's this unity it brings and this outer peace that happens in the fellowship of believers. Like David had a, a smaller scale of the kingdom of God, even now today as we fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body of Christ, as God's church, we're his children. We are seeing a little glimpse right now of what is going to come in heaven. That when we come and we sing and worship together, and when we go to the word together and surrender ourselves and submit ourselves and pray for one another, encourage one another, we are seeing a glimpse of that unity because what we do here should be done under the banner of Jesus Christ. And what's going to be done in the future when it's the final restoration will always be done under the banner of Jesus Christ. This outer peace is revealed. You see this unity in Revelation chapter 7. There's this vision of, of this happening. He says, I, after I looked, there was also this vast multitude from America. No, it didn't say that, did it? We're not the chosen people. I looked, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes, because Jesus gave them that, with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and unto the Lamb. That is the unity of the restoration. That is what we are going to see. And, and, and I love it. The more and more we can do this, the more we can gather and unite under that same banner, worshiping Jesus, lifting up him, saying, your salvation is great. It belongs to God who's seated on a throne and under the Lamb. That is the unity that we long for. 
Not a unity that says, well, my ideas are better than yours. You have to consider them. No, we lay everything down at his feet and say it's you and you alone. And we unite under Jesus Christ, our God. So it brings peace and unity. Finally, the restoration brings everyone to their knees. The restoration brings everyone to their knees. Back in Psalm 18, 43, I'm sorry, 44 and 45, David says, Foreigners submit to me, cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. Now, in this passage, there are those who, who do so willingly and get, and get on with the program and, and, and serve David, David in the kingdom. And there are those who just do it out of crazy fear, and they're, they're just cringing every single moment of, of their lives not really obedient to him, but just, I'm just going to go with the program here and kind of buck the, the, um, the leader all, all the while. And I want to see this as that illustration between David also and then Jesus and us. Uh, listen, the, the kingdom of God will not be divided on this issue. And I, and I want you to understand that if there's unity in anything, there's unity in this. That there are those who trust Christ in faith and there are those who don't. But God is drawing all of us to himself. He said eternity in our hearts. His voice is going out, longing for us to come to know him as Savior and to lay ourselves down. But not everyone gets that. Uh, turn to Philippians with me. Now, we're done in the Psalms, in Psalm 18. Back to right where you were around Colossians, that book right before it. Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you this difference where there's kind of a, a division, I think, uh, at least kind of where it comes from. Philippians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 5 through uh, 9 at first, and then we'll go through 11. <clears throat> so the verse 5 is talking about our attitude being like Jesus, Jesus, right? And verse 6 says, who, so it's explaining and showing us, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I want to stop there for a minute and pause. Because so many people get this picture of Jesus and just stop there. And I think these are the ones that are cringing. When David says they, they're cringing to be obedient, they don't want to be obedient, but they're cringing about this. There are a lot of people that, that do this because this is the view of Jesus they had. Okay, Jesus, we have Christmas. Yay, Jesus came in a manger. He grew up. He, he was a good teacher. He taught a lot of great things. Jesus, yeah. And eventually he, he died on the cross for our sins. And that's kind of where they leave it. Like, oh, this good man went to the cross to, to be this ultimate servant and kind of a, 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 let people walk all over the top of him, right? He's like a doormat. And people see him as this passive kind of hippie teacher that just went to the cross and died for his cause. And they're like, I'm tougher than that. I mean, good job. Way to go, Jesus. That's a, that's a way, way to serve. But come on, you, you, what, what are you doing? This is pretty humiliating for you to do that. Yeah, you're right. It is. He took on all the shame that they had. So people kind of cringe and like, I don't need that Jesus. I don't need that Jesus that was kind of passive and died on a cross. And they forget the next part of this passage describing who Jesus is. Like, oh, that's just Jesus. That's okay. And there's two, people, two types of people we're going to see when, when the voice of God is given, there's, there's two types of people. Let's see the next, the next half of this verse. So we see that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. For this reason, 
because of Christ's humility, because he emptied himself and became obedient to the Father to the point of death on a cross, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what restoration brings? Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. It will bring everybody to their knees. And if you're, if you're stuck in that place of, well, passive Jesus, hippie Jesus, kind of cool servant, whatever, good teacher, you are going to bow before him cringing because who he really is is the exalted one, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is the one who is worthy to judge you. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. On one hand, everybody will bow in judgment because you never did anything with Jesus. And now he's, you're standing before him, and he's like, why didn't you ever do anything with me? I was the exalted one, not you. So some are going to bow on their knees in judgment. Others, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, are going to willingly bow in delight that he forgave them. They're going to willingly bow to their knees in front of Jesus because that's how they've lived their life. They said, he's everything, I'm nothing. He's everything, I'm nothing. And when we finally stand before him, we'll kneel before him and say, you're still everything and I'm nothing. Thank you for what you've done. And we will praise him for that. The kingdom will not be divided here. It will, not, it will be divided in that sense that this is the kingdom. The kingdom are those who are bowing in delight because Jesus has saved them and rescued them from sin by faith. Everyone else who will stand judged and kneel judged and condemned will not get a free ride into heaven. Jesus is extending that to you right now. On judgment day, he will not extend that to you. He says, believe, trust me now. Don't wait till that last moment. Don't wait till that last moment. It's too late then. We'll have two camps bowing, one under judgment and one out of praise and delight in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they heard the voice of the Lord and they responded in faith and trusted Him as Savior. It is so important, listen, it is so important for us to hear His voice and respond. Not to reject, not to ignore, but to respond. He doesn't want to control you and make you into a certain crazy robot, Christian. He, he wants you to be a follower of His. He wants you to be conformed in the image of the Son. He wants you to portray Jesus to the world and lift Him up every chance you get. He wants you to point other people to Him so they can find what we have found in Christ. The last passage we're going to read today is out of John chapter 10, if you would turn there with me. John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 together. Jesus said again, now listen, it's really important that you listen to Jesus' voice. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's, it's not this crazy, tough, oh, I guess I've got to follow Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us that we could have life also. And he is the gate. He's the only way to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through the Son. Come, you, there are other voices, that, but they're, they're not. They're the robbers and thieves. They're not, the, they're not Jesus. They're not the ones that can save. I'm the only one that can save. If you hear my voice and listen to my voice, if you come in my gate, you'll come in and you'll be saved and rescued and you'll be able to go out from there rescued and into green pastures and have that abundance that God is talking about, both now but certainly for eternity. He lays down his life for the sheep. It brings everyone to their knees. Jesus has done that for us. Now it's a matter of us trusting him for it. And God, I, I believe, I trust you in that. I trust that you're the good shepherd. I trust that you have laid down your life for me so that I could have life and, and find life and hope in you, that you will give me this restoration that I, that I have so longed for. And today as we celebrate, we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. We do this about every five weeks in our church and we remember the, the body and blood that was given to us by Jesus on our behalf so that we could have life. And we celebrate the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. It's all about him. I'm going to ask the, the, the stand together, we're going to pray, and the worship team to come up, and the, the men of asked to come serve the Lord's Supper, if you come up as well. It's so important for us as we, as we continue to, to, to think about Jesus and remember Jesus, what we're thinking about right now is that he did all the work that he's the one that brings the restoration, that he's the only one that can bring peace and unity to our hearts. And that one day I will have to bow, and I, I want you to say with me, I will gladly bow before him because he has given everything to me. That your faith is something that is bolstered because of Jesus. So today as we partake in the Lord's Supper, it's our opportunity to, to remember what he's done for us. It's not our opportunity to say, I've been pretty good this week, I, I, can, I can take the Lord's Supper. No, you and I are nothing and he is everything. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we say that over and over. I am nothing. He is everything. I have done nothing. He has done everything. And we put all of our faith in Him. And if we check our hearts today, it's not just to confess sin. It's to confess pride that we think we're good or better than God. We are not. God is the only one good enough to take care of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your love. We thank you that you have made a way for this great restoration not only to take place right now, but God, we know that it's going to be take, taking place in heaven. That one day that this will all be made whole and that groaning that we, we groan every day will, will be gone because it will be fulfilled in you. Thank you for taking our place on that cross and dying the death that we deserved on a cross that we should have, should have bear, bore. God, I pray that you would continue to, to give us the excitement over Jesus. God, that we would put our lives in your hands, that we would elevate you and not ourselves. And as we remember you, may it be an act of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.